Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. And can you believe it? It's already the fourth Saturday in August, our last broadcast for this month of 2022. Where has the time gone? If you're following along in our home maintenance calendar, a free publication we distribute to anybody in the listening audience that would like one, just send us an email at info at rosieonthehouse.com, the address you would like it sent, and we'll send you our calendar. It'll give you a little bit of appointment radio, let you know our topics for uh, each Saturday's broadcast, along with our directory of certified partners if you need a contractor or landscape professional for anything on your home, castle, or cabin. Just one of the many things we do to be every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Uh, all that a long way to say, if you have yours, you know we're talking edible landscape in the Urban Farming Hour this morning. We have Farmer Greg on the line joining us to talk about growing what you eat and eat what you grow, but not just garden type. I mean, this is a whole landscape takeover. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I have been for many years under the opinion of why plant anything if you can't eat it or if it doesn't support edibles, so... So let's do it. All right. Um, what I want people to start doing is thinking about their yard as an integrated landscape in the neighborhood. And you do that by when you go on walks, pay attention to what's going on around you and look to see what kinds of things might be edible in your neighborhood. About a decade and a half ago, a friend of mine who lived in a condo. Uh, I wrote an article about her a while back called Margaret the Condo Gardener. And she, I, I suggested that she wander the neighborhood and see what she could find. And she actually found an old abandoned garden in her, back, in a, in her uh, backyard-ish down an alley and went and knocked on the door. The woman's name was Meg. And she said, you want to revitalize the garden? Go for it. So observation is really the first step and if you don't if you live in a condo observe your neighborhood if you live on a street with houses observe your neighborhood to see what they're growing so that you might be able to um, you know mimic what they're doing i did that for years at the urban farm and really what we're after here is to set up a uh, productive edible landscape that just feeds you all the time. Uh, in the 32 years that I lived at the urban farm on 13th place in Phoenix, um, I created the landscape so there was always something to eat. And what we call it now is an old growth food forest, a food forest that I created that always has something to eat. And when I hear forest, I'm thinking, you know, massive land sprawl, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. And, you know, the urban farm that you're talking about was one quarter of an acre? Yep, it's a quarter of an acre. It is a quarter of an acre. I just talked to the new owners uh, yesterday, and they're still maintaining it. Uh, and, you know, the, the landscape, let me just explain what the landscape at the urban farm looks like. Uh, first of all, it's uh, there's an overstory of trees. There's a large mesquite and a large ash tree 
and a large mulberry tree that were pretty much there for the past 30 years that provides some shade. And in the winter, they provide leaf drop for the mulch bins and for the compost. And then under that was 82 fruit trees. Had 82 fruit trees on a, on a quarter of an acre. And uh, the big piece of that was in the front yard where I had about 40 fruit trees that circled the front yard. Uh, so along the street were 14 citrus trees so that I had a, the street, a berm, and the citrus trees. And then on the inside of that, I had edible gardens that I had uh, created over the past 30 years. And um, so that's really what it looks like. And, you know, at any given moment, we could walk out in the front and backyard and harvest 10 or 15 or 20 things to eat. And that's really one of the things that I'm missing here uh, where I moved to. Uh, is that I'm, you know, I, I'm missing my edible landscape. So I'm in the process of starting to put that in place. And the way we start is where I started this conversation, and that's through observation. You want to stand back and observe, and you're going to look at the different things that might be interacting with your space. So the first one is the sun. And I have an assignment for every, everybody that's listening. Grab your smartphone and mark uh, September 21st, that's coming up, December 21st, March 21st, and June 21st. And those, the December 21st and the, is the longest night of the year, and June 21st is the longest, longest day of the year. And I want you to go out and look to see at like 9 a.m., noon, and 4 p.m. where the sun is at in the sky. That's going to give you an indication of where might be a best place to grow food. We call that the solar aspect. And the western solar aspect in the desert is a really harsh one. A western solar aspect gets sun from uh, noon until sundown. An eastern solar aspect gets sun from sunup until about noon. And if you have an opportunity to plant a garden that gets morning sun, that's where it's going to do best. And I definitely see a lot of interest in people starting to do their own. We hear all the time about, you know, the water situation. And mm -hmm. somebody said, well, that's a reason not to grow garden. I'm like, no, because the first thing they're going to do is cut off all the farmers. You, what you need to do is start your own so you've got something to eat. <laughs> exactly. That's um, – I, I do get that question a fair amount. It's like, here, we're in the desert. We're running low on water. We shouldn't water that. Well, in my opinion, we shouldn't be watering grass. And we shouldn't be watering things that you can't eat. Because um, we have a massive drought going on right now that in the next five years is going to impact, uh, you know, the food system in the United States. So, Understanding where our food comes from and learning how to grow our own is even going to be more so important. And that's what we're talking about today, how to set up not just a garden, but your own edible landscape or food forest, whatever name you choose to call it. And the first one, as Farmer Gray was talking about, was just watching the solar aspect. Where is the sun on yeah. those critical uh, critical dates for the high, low, and, you know, we are just 26 days away from autumn right now, so you're pretty right. close to one of those, uh, the fall solstice. What else are we looking for outside of our sun patterns? 
So the next thing you want to do is you want to wander in your yard. And I've told this to people for years, spend at least a year on your property before you make any major changes. Now, I'm not talking about putting a garden in. Put a garden in uh, after you've done some observation. But major changes is like um, building buildings, um, building greenhouses, taking down trees, that kind of stuff. Because what we want to do is we want to figure out where the microclimates are in our yard. And a microclimate is a place that's cooler or warmer in your garden. If you've ever been hiking in the desert and you walk down into a ravine and it gets 5 or 10 degrees cooler, that's a microclimate. And you're looking for those in your yard. And I really want you to pay attention for places that are cooler and places that are warmer. And what makes places warmer? Concrete, gravel, uh, block walls, those kinds of things will make a warmer microclimate. And a lack of those kinds of things will make a cooler microclimate. So um, you really want to pay attention to what what's going on in your space from that perspective. The next thing we want to look for is water. And if you live in the city, you may think you have one source of water. Your tap, uh, that is, uh, I, I challenge that. Um, we have rainwater. Yes, we do get rain in the desert, and I highly suggest that you pay attention when it's raining and where that water's going and directing that water into your landscape where you're growing things. Uh, there's gray water. Gray water is legal in the state of Arizona to use. Gray water is any water that goes down any drain in your house except your toilets and your kitchen sink. It is legal to use that in your landscape. Now, to plumb your house, to get it to go outside, takes a little bit of work. One of the things that I did at the urban farm is I moved the facilities outside. We had an outdoor shower and an outdoor kitchen, and those that water was used to water the landscape. And something like 70% of the water that we use in houses is for landscaping. So um, by using the gray water, we're offsetting some of that. Uh, also at the urban farm, I had flood water, flood irrigation. Uh, I purposely bought the house 32 years ago because of the flood irrigation. And uh, so what I did with my flood irrigation is I made an edible landscape with 80-some fruit trees in it. And, um, and so. those, those flooded irrigated properties are, you know, SRP districts that are far and few between. <laughs> right. Well, last I heard, there was something like 30,000 acres of flood irrigation in the Phoenix metropolitan area. So it's, there's a fair amount. Um, the other place that you can look, if you have an evaporative cooler on your house, it runs water off constantly in the summertime. And you have an air conditioning unit, collect the condensation water. That's another great place to get water. So really start paying attention to the water that, uh, you have available to you, especially, especially with the drought. Um, and then soil, and I think we're going to go in depth, RRR in soil uh, here in a little while, but soil is a really important thing to pay attention to. One of the big things that we have in the desert that's missing from our soil is organic matter. Uh, Emily Rocky, who used to work with Tanks Green Stuff down in Tucson, did some research, and she found that less, there's less than a half a percent of organic matter in the dirt that we have in the desert. And that's a 
surefire way to end your garden quickly if you don't fix that. So we'll talk about fixing that a little bit. And then uh, outside forces like pests uh, and those kinds of things we need to start paying attention to. All right, we've got a couple callers coming in at one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. If you have a question for Farmer Greg, text can also be sent to 411923. Or if you need a little help with plant or insect identification, you can send a picture to info at rosieonthehouse.com. Farmer Greg, from here we're going to go to garden placement. I think that's going to answer a very long text question we got sent in from a listener and Chandler uh, with questions on his guard. So I'll let you go through your talking points, and if that doesn't answer it, we'll ask the question. But it has to do a lot with what you were talking about, finding that placement. He's got block walls he's dealing with and extra heat. And uh, how, do we, how do we get started on that placement? So the big thing is, to find the place in your garden, in your yard, that's going to make the best garden for you. We already talked about the western exposure, uh, especially a western exposure with a lot of concrete and gravel would be a really hard place to grow. An eastern exposure that gets sun, again, from sun up till noon is a really great place for a garden. Even if there's a lot of concrete there, you'll have to mitigate some of the heat Southern exposure gets sun essentially all day. And the northern exposure is on the north side of a structure, and that would probably not be the best place to try and grow a garden. Uh, the exposure, I get this question a lot, how much sun do, does my garden need? And things that make a fruit, whether it's a tomato or an eggplant or a pepper or beets, they require more sunlight. Things that require less sunlight are your herbs and greens, kale, lettuces, that kind of stuff. Uh, so you can plant those kinds of things in a space in your yard that gets less sunlight. Uh, and usually six to eight hours a day is a minimum to get things growing. And you might be surprised. Go ahead, Roman. Oh, okay. Um, that was a so, yawn. <laughs> okay. I was, I was sucking in extra oxygen. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So the, the more sun, the better. Really, there's two aspects that we deal with with the, with the sun. We d- deal with sunlight, which we need to maximize the sunlight and minimize the heat. And we are um, we're looking always for how to do that. And one of the big things that you can do in your, in your garden and yard to minimize the heat is add woody mulch. I'm a huge fan of chipdrop.com and adding uh, six to 12 inches of woody mulch throughout your yard uh, to, and that does several things. First of all, it keeps the heat down. Secondly, it um, holds on to water. Third, that interface between the dirt and the woody mulch starts breaking down fairly quickly and makes incredible soil. And one of the, you know, one of the long-term fixes for a dirt backyard is a foot of woody mulch. And over time it builds 
incredible soil in your backyard. So, um, and then grow, grow food in your front yard. I'm a huge fan of growing food in your front yard. Uh, that puts it right out there for the neighbors to see. Um, and design your traffic patterns uh, for places where you go every day. You want to put your garden in a place where you go every day. In permaculture, I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. In permaculture, we have things that are called zones. There's zone one, which is those places that we go every day, and zone five is maybe a wild place in your yard that you very rarely go. And you want to get your gardens in zone one or two. So if you have a uh, chicken coop in your backyard like we did at the urban farm, we put the gardens on the way there to the chicken coop so we could see them every day. And that's a big key because a lot of people think, well, I'll put it in the back where it doesn't bother anything. Well, if you put it out of the way of where you're going, you never go there. Right. Exactly. You don't want to put your garden way in a back corner um, where you don't see it because you want to have your eyes on it every day, especially when we're growing healthy, happy food. No, that's that's one thing we learned quick because that was the first thing I did was put everything way away so we've got all of our playing space, but then it's you're, you're just not connected with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And especially, you know, if you have chickens like we did, you want to put them in a zone one because they need to be food fed and watered every day. And integrating chickens in your landscape is a really good thing. And in, in permaculture, we have something called stacking functions. Stacking functions is taking one asset and using it for multiple different things. And in this case, the asset is the chicken. And with chickens, uh, they uh, eat bugs, they eat weeds, they're great diggers. Uh, in Heidi's case, that's my sweetheart, they're her friends. Um, <laughs> they give us poop for fertilizer. Uh, and they give us eggs. And you want to, in, in your zone one in your yard, you want to include those chickens so that, uh, you know, you can go see them every day. Make sure that they get, they get fed and collect their eggs. And you can have chickens just about anywhere inside uh, any metropolitan area or city municipality. It's the roosters you can't. But I, right. I double the statement if you're going to have any of your own you've got to have chickens to it and one of the things you did mention is they're great bug control as well insects they sit out there and they'll eat the insects and bugs and uh, scorpions and cockroaches and flies all day long one seed two hands dig a hole start to plant watch it grow pass it down on garden placement, the texture we had earlier, Farmer Greg said uh-huh. the area that they have on their south is shaded. Is there anything in the winter that grows in the shade? You had mentioned like four to six hours of sunlight. Is Could you start that in a sunnier area in little seed starters? And then once it's sprouted, could you move it to a more shaded area? Or are there vegetables that would, would grow in that? Absolutely, you can do seed starts. Um, we're getting some started here uh, for our fall-ish garden. And um, so you start them inside or buy plant starts at the farmer's market and put them out now. Uh, really, all of the greens do great this time of year. Uh, the hardier greens like kale and broccoli and those kinds of things will do better earlier. 
when I was gardening in Phoenix, we were planting the lettuces and those kinds of things in um, October. Uh, what I really encourage people to do is go to plantingcalendar.org. That's a free planting calendar that I give away. It's plantingcalendar.org, and that'll tell you what to plant when, because it's really important to plant at the right time of year the right crop. You can't count on, the, especially the big box stores. If you're in a big box store right now and they're trying to sell you a, a cucumber, yeah, walk right past it. It's the wrong time of year for it. <laughs> And I see that happen all the time. So. Well, and speaking of seed, you have Seed Up Saturday today. Oh, yeah. SeedUpSaturday.com is uh, one of the projects that we do a couple, three times a year. It's a three-hour uh, seed learning event. Today is our uh, Seed Up Saturday Q-a-thon, question-a-thon. Oh, not Q, not, not Q like that. <laughs> question and answer-a-thon um, where we uh, talk about uh, how to grow seeds, how to start seeds, and like that. And that is used to be in person, but that's all virtual now? Well, we do our Great American Seed Up uh, every November. It's uh, the 4th and 5th of November this year, which will be in Sorry, I'm, I'm getting too combined here. <laughs> yeah, and then we do usually two or three times a year, we do a Seed Up Saturday where we just put it out on Zoom and, and uh, people can – Join us and learn about seeds. Where it all starts. And you can see just how well seeds do in the desert this time of year. I mean, you, you can't drive anywhere right now, Farmer Greg, <laughs> where the, the whole state's not green. Rosie was up in Flagstaff on Monday. Yep. Uh, we were down in Tucson last weekend after the broadcast. Uh, yeah. The White Tanks Mountains look like there's a little bit of green carpet. I mean, it just shows how many hundreds of millions of billions of seeds just sit out there on the desert and as soon as there's a little bit of rain some humidity some overcast few days turns green i loved how you went from hundreds to millions to billions because it really (laughs) is in the billions (laughs) might even be trillions i mean if if you really want to get out there and count because you get you know not every seed germinated right yeah exactly exactly and and the really important thing to get things to germinate and grow healthfully is soil. You know, I talked to, I mentioned in the first segment, the soil, but we need to have an in-depth conversation about soil. We got to dig deep about that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, intended. Healthy soil has five components. You, in the desert, you have one of the components. It's called dirt. And if you try and grow in straight dirt, good luck growing anything. Uh, it's likely things are going to die. Nothing you would want. You know, creosote, they do pretty good. Maybe. Some weeds, California cheese weed does pretty good. <laughs> but we, right, exactly. But we really want to give the trees and plants a limb up in this whole process. And we do that by building healthy soil. So five components of healthy soil. Dirt, which can ter- contains micronutrients that the plants need. But if all you have is dirt, the plants can't get those micronutrients. So it's dirt airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. The super simple fix, and I mentioned it in segment one or two, is add lots and lots of woody mulch, add lots of organic matter. If you're growing a garden, you don't want to put woody mulch in the garden. You want to put compost, planting mix, 
our friends over at Arizona Worm Farm have an incredible raised bed planting mix that you can uh, that you can buy. We just had somebody this week uh, bring up that the er, the Worm Farm broadcast and how interesting that was. <laughs> yeah, what I'll tell you what what Zach is doing over at Arizona Worm Farm at 19th Avenue in Southern is my dream. He's doing my dream project. He's got I think he's got 10 acres over there. And he's got a straw bale house on the property, a tiny home. Uh, he's got greenhouses. He's making worm castings. Uh, they do classes. Go check them out. There's a worm farm there. Amazing. Well, and was that July or June's? I think it was July's broadcast. So that would have been the fourth Saturday in July if you go back to rosieonthehouse.com slash podcast and look at the archives. It, it, yeah. it would have been July 23rd. Yeah. Very, yeah, very good hour. Yeah, exactly. So building healthy soil. When you're going to build your garden bed, if you're building it on, on level ground, not doing a raised bed, uh, if you're doing it on level ground, I suggest doing something called lasagna gardening. And there's actually a book out there called Lasagna Gardening. Uh, in permaculture, we call it sheet mulching. And this is pretty much what I did for 32 years at the urban farm is I just added layer after layer after layer of organic matter and it broke down over time and created this amazing healthy soil. So sheet mulching or lasagna gardening is you take a layer of dried stuff. So save your leaves. Uh, when I was at the urban farm, I had my neighbors trained to bring me bags of leaves in the fall. So save your leaves, save your dried, dried up vegetable plants that, uh, and those are layer one in your sheet mulching. And you can go to four to six inches thick on that layer and then add a little bit of manure. I used to use chicken manure, so just a shovel full or two of manure in the space. That's the nitrogen that starts breaking down the leaves and branches and stuff. And then you add another layer, six inches layer of the browns. Again, could be straw. <laughs> Um, uh, your neighbor's leaves, that kind of stuff, and then a little bit more. And you can do this 24 to 36 inches thick. And what that does is that, that if you go 36 inches thick, that's three feet. I've done three-foot three uh, sheet mulching before. It breaks down in about six months to three or four inches of really nice, healthy soil. So if you're building right on top of soil that you already have there, that's a great way to jumpstart your garden. And I get this question a lot. What do we do with about the Bermuda grass? And the Bermuda grass uh, has to be dug out before you start your garden. Um, when I lived on 13th place, one of my neighbors put in a raised bed garden right in the middle of their Bermuda lawn without checking with me. And I just shook my head. And within six <laughs> months, that, that garden was taken down because it got taken over by Bermuda grass. Uh, it was taken down and the wood was uh, sitting on the curb. And uh, thank you. That I, I grabbed the wood, so thanks to them for that. Uh, I, I reused the wood. But if you're going to plant in an area with Bermuda grass, you need to make sure that you dig out all the Bermuda grass. And you can do that by digging or something called solarizing. Solarizing is you till the space and put black plastic down, and the but black plastic cooks the Bermuda grass. Yes. Don't cover the plastic. You know, you, a lot of people have seen landscapers will put plastic down as like a weed barrier, then rocks on top. This black oh, yeah, no. plastic is to bake and cook the soil to kill. 
So you want that yep. plastic right on top so it, it heats up as much as possible. Yeah, and if you did that for a month and then went back and tilled the soil again, just turned the soil again to loosen it up and put the black plastic down again for a month, um, you could do that now and through September and October, and you'd have a, a great garden ready to go by November 1st. And if and you, you don't can, do that and you just put your garden in, come next growing season in the summer when Bermuda kicks back in to grow, you'll mm-hmm. you'll be completely overtaken. It's it, right. it's a very hardy plant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is you can't pull it out because – Bermuda grass grows by something called a stolon. It's the root. And if you leave a one-inch segment of that stolon in the ground, it'll sprout Bermuda grass. So you actually, if you're going to dig it out, you actually have to dig and tease it out so that it comes out. Um, and then, you know, composting is of utmost importance. Uh, one of the first things that I did here uh, when we moved is I set up a worm composting bin and uh, I put all of my kitchen scraps into the worm bin and you can, uh, again, Arizona worm farm has classes about this. You can um, feed all your food scraps to the worms and then the, the worm poop or the worm castings is we call it gardener's gold. And my biggest takeaway from feeding your worms to make your compost was he was talking about using uh, cardboard and how, you know, that's one thing I always look at when we're looking at waste and how much um, waste is in food shipment, you know, cardboard boxes and you open the box and there's plastic inside and he's just, and then like Ziploc bags, they come in a cardboard box. I mean, everything cardboard and with the, delivery services these days and how much is delivered in cardboard he's like soak it in water put it in your uh warm bin and the worms turn it into compost for you to grow with i mean so like instead of throwing it away uh because and and even if you do throw something in the recycle and it gets taken away i don't know the current numbers but last time we had uh the local recycling on i mean it was like less than eight percent of everything that gets put in the recycle bin gets recycled just because it's not that they're not trying. There's just not a market to buy recycled products. <laughs> did, you, did you say eight or 80? Eight. Oh my gosh. It's that bad. Yeah. And, and it's Every been, a, put... it's been a little while, so we'll have to get an updated number on that. Yeah. Well, it's probably, it's probably gone down from what I understand of the industry, which is sad, but yeah. Recycle your cardboard in your worm bin. Yeah. I mean, or in it, your garden for that matter. It, it's not that people aren't doing the effort of putting it in. It's just when they collect everything that's recycled, where do you send it if no one's buying it? It's like you got to have a market for those products. So we've got one final yeah. segment with Farmer Greg here talking about edible landscapes, growing your own. All right, Farmer Greg, I've got a number of text questions here we're going to rifle through. Number one, and I'm sure many people are asking this if they didn't hear your announcement. You've mentioned it a few times over the last few months, uh, but obviously not everyone hears every single minute, and we don't linger on it long, but where'd you move to? We moved 
to a place, and this has been a long time in planning. I've been planning this informally for about 15 years uh, to Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, a couple of the reasons I, I, I started a conversation with my partner about 10 years ago. I wanted to go someplace quiet and it is definitely a lot quieter, quieter here than living in, you know, in the middle of 4.5 million people and a place where we could grow stuff. I, you know, I grew in Phoenix, literally I grew food in Phoenix for 45 years and um, it's, it's a challenge to grow food there. You have to be dedicated. Here, you just throw seeds out and come back three months later and there's food. So I wanted to experience that difference. Well, congratulations. I've been there. My oldest sister, uh, her husband was stationed in North Carolina for mm-hmm. one of his military trainings. So we got to spend some time out there, been through there. Have you made it to Seagrove yet to get all your pottery for all your different potted plants for the... I haven't. I'll have to check them out. Seagrove? Seagrove. It's like the pottery capital of the world. Oh, I'm in. And and not only stuff for your landscape and garden, but I still have serving dishes. I bought there oh. over 20 years ago that we use for certain you know entertainment settings. I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, so question number two, gentleman says, I'm a woodworker. Can I use the sawdust shavings uh, for my mulch? Absolutely. With one caveat, if you are cutting any wood that is treated, pressure treated, or that is um, uh, composite wood with glues and stuff in it, you don't want to use that in your garden. But if you're just cutting uh, sawdust wood, just, you know, plain wood, go for it, man. The, The more, the better. And would that be considered your brown or your green that is a brown. Brown and composting is browns and greens. You need about seventy percent browns. Those are the dried things, and about thirty percent greens. Those are the you know grass clippings and uh, anything nitrogen based, that kind of stuff. That that's the nitrogen that kicks off the composting process. Even if it's like a real wet and sappy sawdust. Yep. Okay. Yep. And yeah, th- that's your browns. Um. Uh, Matt and Chandler informed us earlier. I mentioned that you the city municipalities allow chickens. Apparently, Chandler does not. Does and, not. Chandler and Glendale do not. That is correct. And I forget about Glendale, which is so funny because there's still so much agricultural in both those communities. Right. That makes <laughs> I mean, no sense to me whatsoever. But and, didn't you say that somebody's working on getting that push through Chandler? Well, he sent me a link on where Chandler residents can go to void voice their support in allowing chickens and homes and the url is so long uh, i'll just put it up on our archive page so go to rosieonthehouse.com click podcast today's broadcast august 27th you'll see it in segment four it's chandleraz.gov slash government slash department slash city Kirk uh-huh. slash city clo- ordinance slash urban chicken ordinance comment form <laughs> oh my gosh there so you go we'll put that up and then the last one awesome uh this guy, or texter, just purchased five acres outside of Kingman in Zone 8. And what's the best thing he can do to improve the soil? Well, your soil mix applies to every zone. Yeah. And our, our soil mantra, I'm going to call it our soil mantra, is add lots and lots and lots of organic matter. If he's got five acres of dirt, if he's got a half an acre of dirt, putting six to... 24 inches of woody mulch on top of it long term it acts like a sponge it builds healthy soil 
It cools the, the ground. It cuts down on dust. That will build healthy soil. Uh, if I was going to do a raised bed, um, I would, you know, maybe a 20-inch raised bed, I would, in the bottom 10 inches of the bed, I would put that woody mulch. And then I would get a really nice planting mix on the top uh, layer, the top 10 inches, and I'd add it. And rotting wood, you don't want it directly in your garden, but in the scenario I just proposed, that's under your garden. And what happens under your garden when it breaks down is mushrooms show up, fungus shows up. And if you have, I get this question a lot. People ask me, oh my gosh, I got mushrooms in my garden. How do I kill them? If you've got mushrooms, you are in good shape. And Woody you're, Mulch grows a lot of mushrooms. You're doing it right. Real quick, a website, Farmer Greg, and the Seed Up. The Seed Up Saturday. Dot com and my website is urbanfarm.org going strong whether i live in phoenix or asheville thanks for spending your saturday morning with us